appear. So it's been a few months since Neil has spoken. We have a, a team of people that speak and develop the messaging here. And at the beginning of the year, I asked Neil if he would prepare something for this season. And so he'll be speaking the next three weeks and leading out also in a devotional guide. Uh, he's developed a devotional guide that you should be receiving, have received by email or will be receiving by uh, email on the, uh, the month. Both. Okay. So if you don't get it in some way, please communicate with one of us. It's a Monday through Friday devotional guide that we're all going to be walking through related to John 18, 19, and 20 leading up to Easter. So it's excellent teaching that he's put together. And uh, not only has he got all his credits in uh, academic study and theology, but he's also well-liked by Boston Consulting. (laughs) So uh, one took money away from him, but put something deep inside of him. The other gives him money. So uh, it's, it's all good. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for what you've done in and through Neil. And we are asking for your word to be alive, that you would get momentum in us and in this season of preparing our hearts again for uh, an awareness of the power that was released at your death, burial, and resurrection. And thank you, Lord, for the gifts you've given him specifically in teaching and in building your word in us. We ask that your spirit would come in revelation power and that it would not just be information in our heads, but it would be transforming life in each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Good morning. How is everyone doing? Good. (laughs) Resounding, mumbling. Excellent. Um, As Mark said, we're going to be kicking off a new series this week. And we're going to be looking at the Gospel of John. And particularly, we're going to be looking at the people and the events leading up to the death and resurrection of Jesus, what we call the passion narrative. So we're going to be spending three weeks pouring into that. And then that should take us right up to Easter week, Holy Week. And um, Easter is is a big and significant time for the church. It's a big moment of the church's calendar. But it isn't a season that it's as much of a focus for our culture and our community around us. They kind of focus a little bit more on Christmas or Halloween or Thanksgiving. And I find for me it's really easy just to come to Easter and just be tucked into the busyness of life and everything that's going on. And Easter then kind of appears and goes and it's just gone in an instant. And I don't have that time often, I feel, to really dig in and remember and reflect on what Easter is all about and what it means for us as a Christian body and a Christian community and as Christian individuals. So we're going to spend this three weeks, as I said, going through some of the the people and the events leading up to that. And the idea is that when we reach Easter and we reach that Holy Week, we've given time and we're able to more mindfully reflect on that, the story and its significance for us. As Mark mentioned, there is a devotional which I'm hoping you guys will use and it will help us as we kind of spend time in the Word and in the Bible through this period. It's a a pretty simple devotional. It's just got some... uh, part of the Bible to read, and then it's got some reflection on that and even a prayer and some application. So it, it can be quick. You can get through it in 10 minutes a day if that's what you have. If you have more, you can dig into it more, and you can really reflect and pray through it. So I encourage you to grab hold of it and just use that in this period alongside these sermons. 
So this week is the first week we're kicking it off. And this week we're going to be looking at the arrest of Jesus, which is in John, and it's in chapter 18 in verses 1 to 9. So if you have Bibles with you or apps, go ahead and, and turn to that. Whom do you seek? That's the big idea or the big kind of question that comes out of this paragraph and this text. Whom do you seek? We're about to read, and Jesus asked that question. The crowds come to him, and he says, Whom are you seeking? Whom do you seek? But it's just as relevant a question for us today. Who are we seeking? In John, it says, When Jesus had spoken these words, and we'll come back to that, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Now there's a West African folktale And it tells the story of this older gentleman who lived in a village. And he would spend the day sat under the tree in the middle of the village, contemplating all that was going on and the people passing by. And one day a traveler came up to him and said, Old man, I've been traveling the country. I've seen many different people in places and things. Tell me, what kind of people will I meet in your village? And the old man looked at him and he said, Of course I'll tell you, but answer me this first. What kind of person have you met on your travels? And the traveler looked at him and scowled and he said, I've met cruel people. I've met people who are unkind. I've met people that take advantage of strangers and don't look out for one another. And the old man looked at him somewhat sadly and said, my friend, those are the kind of people you're going to find in my village. And the traveler kicked the dirt and scowled and went on his way. And as the old guy sat there and he was thinking about things, another traveler came along. And the traveler said to him, Oh man, I've been traveling for a long time and I've seen many people and many things. What kind of people will I find in your village? And the old man looked at him and he said, I'll tell you, I'll very much tell you. But tell me, what kind of people have you met in your travels? And the traveler looked at him and smiled and he said, I've met some wonderful people. They've been kind and they've been loving. They've taken care of strangers and they've looked after me. They've been very welcoming. And the old man looked up at him and smiled and said, My friend, those are the kind of people you're going to find in my village. Now, that folktale tells us something that in psychology we call confirmation bias. And confirmation bias is the idea that whatever our views are, when we see new evidence or when we meet and interact with certain events, we're going to use those to confirm what, in fact, we already believe. There's research which actually says even if the evidence that you get is contradictory to what you think, people will still interpret that to confirm what they already believe. And as this folktale says, that has implications on all that we do and all that we think. It suggests that when we look for something, what we find 
is in large part determined by what we expect to find. And that's exactly what we're going to see. And what we see in this uh, passage that we've read today is just as true in Jesus' time. This crowd came to Jesus, this crowd full of Romans and chief, the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they come to Jesus, and they've got certain expectations about what they're going to find and who they're going to see. And what we're going to see is that they come to him, and they say to him, we're looking for this person. And Jesus says to them, who exactly are you looking for? And they're like, we're looking for this person. And so he tells them, he says, this is who I am. But they don't really understand. They don't really get it. And although they came to Jesus looking for something, they had preconceived ideas. And whatever they came with is likely what they found and walked away with. And the same is true for us, right? Who do we seek? When we come to church, when we pray, when we read our Bibles, who is it that we're seeking? Maybe we're we're looking for a provider. We're looking for someone who can give us a better job or a better house or a spouse or you know, can make my life and circumstances a little bit better. Maybe we come to church looking for friendship and community. This suggests that what we come expecting to find is either something we find and we're happy, or we don't and we're disappointed. We have confirmation bias as well. Jesus, as I've said, says to this crowd, this is who I am. And if only they believed him, maybe things would have worked out a little differently but their own preconceived ideas held sway. And there are three things that I want to look at this morning. Firstly, I want to show that Jesus reveals who he is. I want to talk about Jesus confirms who he is. And then lastly, Jesus demonstrates who he is. So he reveals who he is, he confirms who he is, and he demonstrates who he is. So firstly, Jesus reveals who he is. So I want to give you a bit of context. In the the Gospel of John, the uh, book of the Bible, John talks in his first 12 chapters, basically, about Jesus' public ministry. So everything that Jesus has been doing and saying and interacting with people around him. And John has been really concerned throughout the whole of his gospel to show that Jesus is the Son of God. He's this long-anticipated Messiah who's going to come and he's going to save the people. And John is presenting witnesses and evidence of that, and he's trying to convince us. And then we come to John 13, and there's a real change of pace and a real change of focus. Earlier in John, he's used this phrase, and he said, Jesus did something, but his hour had not yet come. And that's a strange phrase, and the the disciples clearly didn't really understand what that phrase meant. And then we come to John 13, and John says, but now Jesus' hour has come. And we still might not fully get the significance of that phrase, but we do know that something is changing. There's a change of pace. There's a change of focus. And from John 13 onwards now, we see Jesus interacting with his disciples. He's giving them instruction. He's telling them stuff. And we see some pretty famous stories that we know pretty well. There's the Jesus washing the disciples' feet. There's the final Passover meal. There's Judas leaving ultimately to betray Jesus. And then there's Jesus' long instructions and prayer for his disciples in John 17, what we call the high priestly prayer. And that happens. And then after he's prayed, they leave the house and head to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not the first time that they've been to the Garden of Gethsemane, it says in our passage. They're pretty familiar with it. They've been there a few times. And yet something's a little bit strange this time because Jesus has been saying some strange things and he's pretty distraught, but they don't really know why. In fact, with probably a pretty decent meal inside them and maybe even a few glasses of wine, in the tranquility of the garden, 
they're finding it hard to stay awake even. And I think the scene is something like you see in your average horror movie, right? So typical horror movie, you're watching, and there comes that point where the hero or the heroine decides that it's a good idea to enter that empty house late at night completely alone. Apparently that's the thing to do. And they're going in and they're walking around that house and everything is really, really quiet and they're just walking around exploring because bang, there's this thing that happens that's going to jump out, right? We've seen it in every movie. And this is a little bit like that because they're in the garden and it's tranquil, but you know that something is coming. And then this crowd appears and suddenly the sleepy disciples are jostled awake because they hear this crowd coming. And the words that's used when they particularly describe this Roman soldiers that come, they describe it as kind of like a detachment, which we know is somewhere over 500 people. So when it says there's a crowd coming, there is a crowd coming, right? They're coming up the hills, and you've got these 500-plus Roman soldiers, and you've got the chief priests, you've got the Pharisees. There's a lot of people, and they're coming with torches and weapons. It's not going to be quiet. They're not going to be missed. It's not like they snuck up on them. And it's a scene that's somewhat reminiscent of the, the chase the beast scene in Beauty of the Beast, right? You just have this wild crowd coming with lanterns. And in the middle of this, the disciples are panicked. They don't know what is going on. And yet Jesus is standing there, and for the first time in that night, he's possibly unfazed. We're told that knowing what's going to happen, he comes forward to meet them. And he says, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, which to us sounds a little strange. It's like saying, I'm looking for Mark of Boston. Not something we would necessarily do. And it makes me think, what if Jesus hadn't responded that? And he said, oh, 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 I get it, but no, I'm actually Jesus of Ephesus. Uh, That that Boston, that that Nazareth guy is another one. Oh, 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 bad. Back it up, back it up. And off they'd have gone. Maybe that's why Judas was there. No, it's him, it's him, it's him. It's Ephesus, no. But Jesus doesn't respond that way, right? He actually responds in a very different way. And to understand it, we need to back up a little bit into the Old Testament to a story of uh, of around about a couple of thousand years before. Because before, in a couple of thousand years ago, we hear about the Egyptians and how they held people of God in slavery. And the Israelites were in slavery and they were being oppressed and mistreated. And the people were crying out to God and praying and saying, God, you've forgotten us. Why are we here being slaves to the Egyptians who are mistreating us? Save us, rescue us. And God heard their prayer and he did something about it. In Exodus uh, 3, verse 3, it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. So Moses is walking around. He's an Israelite too. He's one of God's people. And he's tending his father-in-law's sheep. And as he's walking along, he looks over, and there's this burning bush that doesn't seem to be destroyed. Not your typical Monday. So he thinks, okay, I'm going to go and check that out. So he walks over there, and this voice from the bush says to him, Moses, take off your shoes, because where you're standing is holy ground. And he does. And then this voice in the bush says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land 
to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So this sounds pretty promising, right? We're in slavery in Egypt, and God says, no, I'm going to take you out of there. I'm going to bring you to a land flowing with wine and steak. It's going to be great. And you just, you just need to go there, and you need to lead them out. I'm choosing you, Moses, and I'm going to choose you to take them out. And Moses has been pretty excited, rescue for his people. This is what he's been wanting and praying for. But now there's a few details he's feeling a little sketchy about, right? Why on earth, God, would they follow me? Why would they do what I say? And God says to him, don't worry, I'm going to go with you. They're going to follow you because I go with you. And at this point, Moses essentially says, you know, that sounds good. Who are you exactly? Who do I tell them has sent me? And God responds and he says, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, over the last few years, there's been a trend to call kids some unusual names, right? I don't know if any of you have heard of the actor Rob Morrow. He called his child Two. I thought that was unkind. <clears throat> Tomorrow. Why not? It's only a day away. But when God speaks and he calls him I am, we probably wouldn't call our kids that. God uses a verb, a Hebrew verb, which it literally means to be or to exist. Quite literally, I am. And so why does God say that? Why does God use I am? And I think he's trying to convey, he's, he's conveying three things through that. First of all, he's com- um, trying to convey, as we sang in the song just before this, that he has always existed. He's the God who was and is and is to come. And that's the exact phrase that we read in Revelation, the last book of the Bible, when they're worshiping God. They talk about the God who was and who is and to come. In the Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet, he's speaking for God and he says, I am he, I am the first and the last. So God is trying to uh, convey that he is eternal, he has always been and he always will be. He's also saying that there has been no person who has come before him. Again, back in Isaiah, in chapter 43 this time, it says, understand that I am he, I am the first, I'm sorry, I've gone backwards, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any God after me. God is saying, I am the first, I'm eternal, and there's none before me who has more authority or more power and on whom I depend. It is me. And he's also saying, there's no thing that came before God but that everything is either God or it's creation. And God created everything in creation. There is no thing that came before God. Now, during a time when typically people had a pantheon of gods, they had a whole range of gods they believed in, a god for this and a god for that. This was a pretty radical claim. This is standing up and saying there is one God who has all ultimate power, all ultimate authority, who has always existed, will always exist, will never be challenged, and is truly divine. This was a huge claim. And now, in the text today, we see this crowd coming before Jesus. And they said, Jesus says to them, whom do you seek? And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And quite literally in the Greek, Jesus said, ego eimi, which is I am. He says, I am. And he says it for two reasons. One is, yes, he's saying, yep, Jesus of Nazareth, that's me. Look no further, it's me. But he's doing so much more than that. 
He's conveying that self-designated title of God. He's saying, I am. I am one with God. Everything that God can do, I can do too. We are the same. I am God. He says that as he says those one, two words. So Jesus says to them, whom do you seek? And he says, well, whoever you're seeking, whoever you thought you were going to come and find, you found God. And then Jesus goes on, not only to reveal who he is, but to confirm who he is. Because when he says that phrase, ego me, I am, look at how the crowd responds. We're told they drew back and fell to the ground. Now that must have been a pretty amazing scene, right? Because there's this huge crowd who are pretty noisy, 600-odd people coming with torches, with weapons. They come up to Jesus. They must feel pretty confident in their sheer number, if nothing else. And they come to Jesus, and they say, we're looking for Jesus. And he says, here I am. And the next thing you know, you see a sea of prostrate people on the floor. And what was this huge baying crowd has now become this, this sea of bodies. Why is that? Let's take a real quick step back into the Old Testament again. In the book of Ezekiel, which is written by the prophet Ezekiel, he saw a vision of God, and he says, such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. So he's just described what God looks like. And he said, such was his appearance that when I saw it, I fell on my face. If you go forward again, and there's another book in the Old Testament, Daniel, where the prophet Daniel speaks of basically being knocked out. He says, and when he, God, had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. And it's not just the Old Testament. As we go forward into the New Testament and we read about Paul, who was called Saul, and he meets with Jesus, and Jesus appears to him, and it says, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then lastly, if we go forward to Revelation, John, who wrote the book of Revelation, talks about meeting with God. And he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. So we see this pattern throughout the Bible that when people come into the personal and revealed presence of God, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, they fall over and fall on their faces. And that is exactly what we see in the text today. So they come to him and they say, who are you? And he says, I am, I am God. And we see 600 people fall over. And John is saying, you know, what Jesus is saying, this claim to be divine isn't just some delusion. It's not some grand aspirations that this person has. It's true. And here are 600 people who are going to witness to that fact, whether they want to or whether they don't. And they go down on their faces. So Jesus has said to them, look, I don't know who you came seeking, but you have found God. And he's confirmed this, and John's confirmed this by saying, look at the reaction of the crowd. Look how they responded to that truth. But then lastly, Jesus then demonstrates what that means. He demonstrates who it is and what it means to be the Son of God. So we've now got a crowd of people who are just flat out on the floor, and Jesus walks over to them and says, I'm sorry, who is it you're looking for? going to need to speak up. Can't hear you down there. And eventually they stumble up to their feet, probably looking a little bit confused, dust themselves off, and they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says in verse 8, I told you that I'm he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fill the word that he had spoken of those whom you have given me. I have lost not one. 
So he affirms that he's the person that they're looking for. But he goes on to say, if you're looking for me, you found me. But these other guys with me, just, just let them go. Let them be on their way. And we're told that he does that to fulfill even his own words, which we find in the, actually in the chapter before, chapter 17. And in that chapter, Jesus was praying for his disciples because he knows he's about to go. And whilst he's praying, he prays that God would come and protect them. He says that while he was here, he was protecting them. But soon he is not going to be here, and he wants God to protect them. And it's in that context, that context of protection and looking after the disciples, that we get this comment about its fulfillment. In this moment of of imminent death, where knowing all that was going to happen to him, and we have some knowledge now of what's coming, and we know that it's not good, but in that moment of crisis... His first thought is not for himself, but knowing all that would happen, his first thought is the protection and care and love of the disciples. The Bible has quite a lot to say about those who lead people and those particularly who lead God's people. And it uses this image of the shepherd. And the the idea of a shepherd leader is pretty well known, and it speaks of the shepherd's role to provide for and protect the sheep. And the shepherd's role is crucial because if they do it well, the sheep flourish and they do well. But if they do it badly, then the sheep get destroyed. And the Bible has a lot to say about those people that it considers to be bad shepherds. If we go back again into the Old Testament and again back to Ezekiel, this time in verse, uh, sorry, chapter 34, Ezekiel's speaking about the people that lead Israel, that lead God's people. And he says this, he says, Shepherds of Israel... Who've been feeding yourselves. Should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you've not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you've ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And Ezekiel's saying, you people are given the role of looking after God's flock. And what are you doing? You're looking after yourself. You're more concerned about your own comfort, your own wealth, your own well-being. You are bad shepherds. And as a result, the sheep are being scattered. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on to talk about one day when a shepherd's going to come, and he's going to be a good shepherd, and he is going to look after and lead the people. And again, in that same chapter, but a little later on, he says... And I, God, will set up over them one shepherd, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. He shall be prince among them. So years ago, back in Ezekiel's time, he's complaining about these leaders, but he looks forward and says, there's a leader who's coming, and he's going to do everything that you don't. He is going to be a good shepherd to the people. And now you have this crowd showing up. You have this crowd coming to arrest Jesus. And when you look at the crowd, we're told that it's the Pharisees. We're told that it's the political rulers. We're told that it's even the Romans who are the kind of the law enforcers. So you have the political and the governmental leaders of God's people showing up. These are people whose role it is to take care of and look after the Jewish nation. And John's basically saying, you guys guys are bad shepherds, right? They're coming and they're coming to meet with Jesus, but they're coming with their own agenda, You know, the Romans are basically concerned that this Jesus character is stirring up the trouble and he's going to cause a revolution, and they just want to bring peace. 
And then you've got the political leaders, and their, their noses are bent out of shape because Jesus has been challenging their authority and has been challenging the things they think they believe and the things they've been teaching. And at times, he's been pretty unkind about the things he said. He's called them vipers, snakes, whitewashed tombs. He's not been particularly friendly. He's not out there to make friends with these guys too much. And they're, they're disappointed. They're trying to get rid of this person who's trying to challenge their authority. And we even have Judas, who we're told is with them, right? He's aligning himself with them. Now, here's a guy who's supposed to be a part of this new movement. He's supposed to be a leader in this new movement. And even he is more concerned, seemingly, about his wealth than he is about Jesus himself. So these apparent leaders are here, and in Ezekiel's words, they are bad shepherds. And yet, in the middle of this crowd, there stands Jesus. In the middle of this crowd stands one who, even though he's facing death, he stands there and leads his people by protecting and caring and pastoring them. Earlier in John, Jesus has revealed himself as the good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. He is, he's saying he's the one who's come in fulfillment of the prophecies before. He is the one who's come to lead the people. And we know that he's going to do that by laying down his life for his sheep. So in this passage, we see that God is, Jesus has come and he said, look, I don't know who you'll come searching for, but what you found is God. And he's shown us that that is true. People have borne witness to that fact. It's not merely some myth. And then he said, let me demonstrate what that looks like for you. Because whatever ideas of what a leader is, maybe you don't have it right. A leader is me. A leader is the good shepherd. And I am here to lay down my life for the sheep, to love them and protect them and to pastor them. So I want to come back to the original question. Whom do we seek? Whom do you seek? Now, there's lots of reasons why maybe we come to church, um, my, we, why we attend faith group, life group. Um, and there's lots of reasons why we read our Bible and why we pray. You know, maybe you are seeking a provider. Maybe you are seeking someone who can give you those things that you need. Maybe you think, I want a better job, or, you know, I need a spouse, and I'll be happy if I can only find a spouse, or if I just had some more money and I didn't worry about my bills. And maybe you come primarily seeking a provider. Or maybe you are lonely and you attend faith group and church because you're like, in this place somehow I find community. And maybe you read your Bible because you were told that you should, that's what a Christian does, or maybe you read your Bible because you think, if I read the Bible first thing in the morning, maybe somehow magically that will give me a better day. I don't know. And I'm not saying, please hear me, that it's wrong to pray about our needs. We're going to go through different phases of life, and we're going to have different needs, and some of those are going to be financial, and some of those are going to be relational, and it's not wrong to pray for those, and it's not wrong to see that God is a provider of our needs and cares for us, and it's not wrong because the Bible says we should pray. It says, you know, give us this day our daily bread. It's not wrong. Those are good things, and we should do them. So hear me say that we should do that. But the Bible does also say, seek first the kingdom of God. So it establishes a priority in our hearts of why we come to God. And I think if we come to God primarily seeking something other than the person and the nature of God, then that's us revealing who it is that we actually seek, whether it be a provider or a miracle worker or anything else. Instead, we need to come and we need to meet with God recognizing who he is and because we want to meet with that person, right? Right? Because we're going to come and we're going to meet with the I am. 
We're going to meet with the God who says, I've always been. I've been there in the past. I'm here now, and I will always be. The God who says, I am eternal. The God who says, there is none that came before me or, or after me. The God that says, I created all things, and everything is here because of me. We're coming to meet with that transcendent God. But when we come, we also find that we, the God that we're meeting is the good shepherd. He's the God that loves us and looks for us and looks after us. He's a God who made us not just to make himself look good, but because he wanted relationship with us, and he wants us in relationship with him, enjoying one another. We come and we meet with the God who's transcendent, but also the God who's personal, the good shepherd. And over this Easter period, this period leading into Easter and the Easter week itself, I want to get us to ask ourselves, who is it that we're seeking? Who do we seek? If the band want to come back up. Who is it that we seek? If everyone wants to take a... Stand. I really want to challenge us this morning to ask, who is it that we're seeking? Maybe you aren't a Christian here this morning. Maybe you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian, and that's fine. Maybe you're just exploring. But I really encourage you that come to Jesus and come to God with an open heart. Don't come with preconceived ideas. Try and leave those aside, and instead ask, Lord, show me who you are. And then be open to whatever God might say and might do. Make no assumptions, but even this morning, just come and say, God, I don't know that you're there, but if you are, reveal yourself to me and just be open to what God says. For Christians here this morning, for those of you that think, yep, I've got a relationship with God, I just I want to encourage us to recommit our lives to God. This isn't a recommit to action. That may be come later, but recommit to seeking God because of who he is. Recommit to to chasing Jesus, not because he says, I'll provide for you, or not because he says, you know, I'll meet your needs. Those things are true. But commit to seeking Jesus because he is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one who came to put us back into a relationship with God, the transcendent I am we've just been talking about. I really want to encourage us this morning and over this Easter period to seek after God recognize that he's a provider, recognize we have needs and that we should bring them to him, but to seek after God because he's God. And to seek after God because he loves us. And the appropriate response to that love is that we love him in return. Let's pray. Father God, we recognize that you are the I am. Lord, you stand over all creation and you shout, I am the I am. You are the one who was there before time began. You are the one who's with us and stands with us now. And you are the one who's going to be there in the future in all eternity. Father, let us recognize the majesty of who you are, Lord. And Father, let us get a particular grip that you are the God who is here now in the present. And you are the good shepherd. You are the one who came and lived with us and lived a life we couldn't live so that we could be joined to you again in relationship. You are the good shepherd who didn't concern himself with his own position and his own things, 
but looked after his sheep. And that's what you stand and say now. I want to look after you. I want to care for you. You are my sheep. And Lord, primarily you do that by dwelling with us, by living with us, by meeting with us, and by us meeting with you. Father, I want to pray that we can commit ourselves to you again this Easter period. We can commit to chasing after you, wanting to find you. Not just the things that you might give us, but Lord, you. And I pray that our hearts will be full of your spirit. I pray that our hearts will be stirred to love you more. Lord, we come saying we desire you and we want to desire you more. I just want to encourage you as you stand there now, if, if you feel comfortable, I, I encourage you just to recommit and say, God, I am seeking you and I want to meet with you and I want you to meet with me and I want a real experience of you because I want to know you. pray with someone, I encourage you either to pray with the person near you, someone you know, or if you come to the front, and if we have any faith group leaders or a prayer team, I just ask that you come to the front now. If you want someone to stand alongside you and pray that with you, then come to the front and we can pray. It's nothing magical, it's just someone who's going to stand alongside you and agree with you and say, yes, we want that for this person, we want you to meet with God. I just pray and encourage you now, take five minutes.